Good evening, everybody. Um, this is Rich Duncan with Ink Heist, and tonight I'm joined by my co-hosts Shane Douglas Keen and Laurel Hightower. And tonight we're happy to have David Hesco Wanbley Wyden, the author of Winter Counts, on the show. Um, so, how are you doing tonight, David? I am doing great, and you know, thank you so much for having me. I mean. You guys asked me to be on months ago, and I've just been really, really looking forward to it. So I'm just genuinely, you know, delighted to be here. So thank you. Yeah, any any time. We're happy to have you. Um, We were really excited. Uh, I think when we contacted you, I don't think it was long after the announcement of uh, Winter Counts. Um, but uh, two for our listeners, we generally have our guests give kind of like a uh, – new kid at school speech. So anything that you would like to tell our listeners, you know, about yourself, your writing, and just anything you would like to, you know, introduce to re- yourself to readers. Well, sure. Um, I'll go ahead and just kind of give my, you know, a little short bio and who I am and all that. So yeah, I'm uh, David Heska Wombly Wyden. I'm a, a, an enrolled citizen of the Sichangu Lakota Nation, uh, known in English as the Rosebud Sioux Tribe. Uh, So we have a reservation in South Dakota. Uh, Now, I live in Denver. I'm a Denver native, and but I uh, my mother grew up on the res. And so we would travel there most summers. And so the reservation is sort of my my second home. Um, And I have so native citizens in this country. We we have dual citizenship. So I'm a U.S. citizen, but I'm also a citizen of the Sichangu Lakota Nation. So that kind of gives you an orientation. Now, why this matters is mm-hmm. my, my book, Winter Counts, is set on the Rosebud Reservation with a brief detour in Denver. And uh, the book deals with a lot of the issues that exist on the Rosebud Reservation. We can probably get into those later. But just staying with the new kid in school stuff. Um, yeah, so I'm, uh, uh, I live in Denver. I've got uh, two kids. Um, you know, I I, uh, I mean, you know, the boring stuff is, uh, you know, I went to school in Colorado and Texas. I did a writing degree at the Institute of American Indian Arts. And, um, yeah, I started writing this book um, in, in graduate school some years ago. It was a, a short story. And then I decided about three or four years ago to turn it into a, a novel length treatment. And I'm just, uh, you know, really happy with the reception that it's getting. It does release on August 25th. Um, and it's uh, the reception it's getting is is brilliant. That was one of the things I was going to say is that uh, I was tearing your uh, website apart today and your bio. And it's like, <laughs> well, number one, you've got some hellacious accolades under your belt. Um, well, well done on that. Um, number two, you're you're quite the good looking fellow. Oh. Uh, <laughs> wow that's <laughs> but uh most importantly yeah some of the things people are saying about this book and i don't think there's any of us here who wouldn't agree more you know with the words of benjamin Pace, percy and steph jaw and people like that um well done on that uh have you been a long time fan of mystery fiction I have. I have. And I just want to say, too, that uh, the author photo, I suspect that uh, the guy who took it had to probably spend a few thousand dollars on filters and all that. So, you know, <laughs> it's, 
that, you know, I, that really bears no resemblance <laughs> to what I look like right now. But thank you for the kind words. Um, yeah, I love crime fiction. So, you know, the, the sort of my backstory in all this is I grew up, you know, there's no nice way to say it, in, in a fairly impoverished uh, situation. Um, I grew up in the, the worst and sort of roughest neighborhood in Denver, Colorado. And, um, you know, we didn't have a lot of money, but my, my parents always made money for books and, you know, they always found money for books. And um, if we couldn't afford to buy a lot, there was a a bookmobile which came to our school because we were nowhere near any library and we were, you know, our neighborhood was too poor to have one anywhere close. And I would just get, you know, dozens of books every week and just devour them. And I, I read all the, you know, the, the crime fiction that I could get back then, but I had never really read the classics until graduate school. I had never read Chandler and Elroy and, you know, Dash Hammett, you know. And in graduate school at Vermont College of Fine Arts, for where I went at first for an MFA degree, I had a teacher who said, it's time for you to read the greats in crime fiction, Jim Thompson and some of these others. And I, and I was just blown away by how amazing these writers uh, were. So I've always been attracted, you know, drawn to genre fiction, uh, you know, westerns, horror, sci-fi, you name it, crime. But I hadn't done a serious study until graduate school. Now, I transferred from Vermont College of Fine Arts to the Institute of American Indian Arts because as a as a native writer, they had opened up a new graduate program and they had so many superstar American Indian writers there. So I transferred and I continued sort of my study of crime fiction there. So I'll kind of, I'll stop there. That's, um, that's excellent though. I mean, and I love, I, I just, I always love the, the bookmobile and the, um, it just kind of made me smile because that was us too. It was like, no matter what else was going on, no matter how broke we were, it's like, yep, we got money for books. <laughs> yeah, the bookmobile, and I just love libraries. And so I've been really gratified that Echo HarperCollins has done a real outreach to libraries because, you know, look, not everybody can afford 25 bucks for a hardcover, you know, and I get that. And I love that libraries are are just buying up winter counts in droves. And I'm and I'm thrilled about that because I was a, a library kid. Um, I lived in this rough neighborhood in Denver till I was about 10. My parents divorced and we moved to an equally bad neighborhood. Um, so continuing the story, I didn't become a writer till later in life because I just I, I just it didn't it, it's not a career path that you take. If you're a first generation college student, which which I was, you know, and of color, it, it's not something that you really think about as being, you know, the, the path you should take. So I became a lawyer of all things. And, you know, just because that seemed like a job that nobody could fire me from. So I did that. <laughs> for, you know, I was like, you know, that, that seemed to be fairly safe, recession proof job. Um but so I didn't really start writing until uh, uh, much later in life. But I'm 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 you know glad that I finally started. I am too. Thank you. Yeah, same. And um, you know that it's kind of interesting that because you said you kind of came to uh, writing later in life. But um, like I saw that you you know you teach at the Lighthouse Writers Workshop and in the MFA program at Vermont College of Fine Arts. So like as someone who you know, came to writing later in life, you know, what, how did that kind of influence how you approach like teaching students how to write? And do you do something 
you know, that's maybe a little bit different or like what kind of things do you like to incorporate? Because I feel like people who kind of come to writing a little bit later, like they might be, they might be like more open to like new ideas. Yeah. You know, that, that's a great question. And one I've never really been asked before. So thank you. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think that I do have a different perspective in my teaching. Uh, so look, I am a professor of native American studies at Metropolitan State University of Denver. We're, um, you know, a teaching institution. We mainly teach first-generation college students and students of color. Um, I did quit a much better-paying job in New York, (laughs) Hofstra University in New York, to come back home and teach at this school because I believe in the school. But on the side, I teach the Lighthouse Writers Workshop in Denver, and I will be starting at Vermont College of Fine Arts this fall. I'll be going out to Vermont in October uh, to teach. But I think... You know, being, you know, middle aged and and teaching, um, I I, hopefully I can kind of, you know, push the students. I have a little bit more of a perspective and and I'm, you know, look, I have two kids. I've 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 been broke. I've been not broke. And so, you know, I think hopefully I have just a wider perspective. Now, having said that, you know, there are lots of younger teachers that are just amazing. But I think what I can offer is just sort of the, you know, the experience of having lived, you know, some events and. And, and trying to help students, you know, pull that out and, and really express, you know, their own truth through their writing. Yeah, that that's really cool. You know, I've always been kind of fascinated by that because we've had a couple other authors who also, you know, like teach writing. And it's just kind of cool to see like uh, Stephen Graham Jones, like he had some really cool insights on that. And it's just kind of cool to hear people who are authors and then you know also teach students kind of you know how they view it and and like you said i think i think it is interesting that you know you can bring that kind of perspective you know through your own experiences and you know it's a a little bit different and then you can kind of you know help other writers that way yeah and i should say too stephen graham jones is a friend of mine and you know he's he's really trained in a way that i'm not um you know he's got a phd in creative writing he's been teaching i think you know teaching writing for 20 years i mean i couldn't hold a candle to him teaching wise you know as far as teaching writing i'm you know i mean i i I do my best but he you know he's a master from i've talked to some of his students and they all just rave about him so i wouldn't pretend to be on the same level as stephen (laughs) He is a master, though. He's a master, and he's a madman. The guy teaches like 600 people a day, I think. Oh, wow. Not really, but I mean, (laughs) he teaches all over the place, and it's it's pretty impressive uh, how active he is at that. Um, I'm sure you are, too. I couldn't speak to it because I haven't done enough uh, due diligence, which means I'm really old, and I've been following Stephen for a long time, and you're new. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's he's a he's a good one. He and I did a, a reading together before this crazy pandemic hit, and he doesn't like to go out a lot after readings. But we uh, we did a reading in uh, uh, Denver because I live in Denver and he lives in Boulder, about 40 miles away. And then uh, uh, so my partner and I, she 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 knows of this place called the White Horse Bar, and it's the the traditional Native American bar in Denver. But it's 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 kind of sad because people don't go there a lot anymore. So. We had a bunch of native writers and and we took Stephen. We were like, you're coming with us, Stephen. And we took him to this bar and the owner just was like, his face lit up. He's like, this is like the old days. I've got Indians drinking in here and having fun and laughing. And 
you know, so I, that's a memory, a memory I really treasure of just getting Stephen Graham Jones out and just having a great time with him. Oh yeah, absolutely. I blast. I, I bet it would. That would be a blast to me from either side of that equation, actually. But. Yeah, and just the <laughs> the pre-pandemic actually getting to do readings and going right? out places <laughs> afterward. That just sounds fantastic. I know, right? Um, so how is that? Well, I, I want to backtrack real quick just because so I sort of feel like, though, so you you got you got a Juris Doctorate and you do you still practice law? I, I don't. I mean, I do have a license um, and I was donating my time for the last four years volunteering uh, my legal expertise for an organization in Denver called the Denver Indian Family Resource Center. That's a nonprofit organization that whenever a native kid, the state tries to come in and take a native kid away from its family, maybe there's an allegation of abuse or bad parenting or something, we would just step in and make sure there's a federal law called ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act. And we would make sure that the, the mandates of the federal law are followed. Uh, and so I did volunteer with them for a number of years. Right now, though, honestly, uh, writing a book and getting ready to launch it um, is it is much more involved than I had had ever dreamed of. This is my debut. I do have a children's book that I wrote, and I wrote a scholarly book some years ago. But putting out a fiction debut, I just had no idea how what all it was going to take. So no, no law right now. Well, and it's I was kind of thinking though that actually, you know, when you said, uh, you know, that Stephen Graham Jones, he just, you know, he's been doing it for so long and everything. I really find that a lot of times the practice of law, since it involves so much writing. I feel like that really ends up being quite a preparation for some folks to write with. So, I mean, I, I feel like that's also just something that you can kind of bring to it in teaching. Yeah, yeah. I think I think um, legal writing is obviously a different beast than creative writing, but it does force you. Legal writing is very concise. You have to express your uh, uh, arguments very concisely and very clearly. So I think it has helped me develop my pro style and it's helped me with my students, kind of help them shape their pro style. Now, you know, there's a weakness there. I Because I'm trained in a certain style of writing, it took me a while to sort of loosen up on internal monologue. I, I still think that's one of my weak points and I'm working on it all the time to try and just get better at that sort of free association, stream of consciousness, internal monologue. The lawyer in me wants to be like, let's get to the point here, you know. So, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah, I think, look, my legal training and, and writing style, I think I think it's helped me in certain ways, sure. Yeah, I, I think it just, there's like a sort of a, a, a clarity to it, you know. Yeah. So, but, well, yeah, so when you're talking about, you know, doing all this and launching it too during, obviously, you know, you had no way of knowing when when you signed this and when everything got set up for the release date that there was going to be a pandemic going on. So um, how have you kind of adjusted uh, with the launch? What um, how have you changed things up? Yeah, it's it's been a disappointment. I'm not going to lie about it. I just got word yesterday that we thought there might actually be one live event socially distanced here in Denver, Colorado, people masked up. But I'd actually be able to read some words in front of actual human beings, you know, face to face, even if I'm 20 feet away. But that one, in fact, yesterday, they just announced it. No, we can't do it. So every single one of my in-person events was canceled. I was supposed to be the keynote speaker at a big industry wide convention. You know, just it all kind of fell apart. And it was, you know, look, all people 
artists going through this right now, writers had the same thing. So it's not just me. And look, I get that people are losing their jobs too. So I've been trying to keep some perspective, but yeah, it was, it was a uh, uh, rough um, because I just didn't know if I was going to get the word out. Now, luckily um, a number of folks have kind of published me and been willing to get my ideas out there. I published an essay in the New York times and that helped kind of bring some awareness. And so it's turned out okay, but yeah, I'd be lying if I if I said that I wasn't disappointed. I don't know if you can hear my dogs barking. I'm in my office. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> if if any listeners are here hearing this, I've got two little Bichon Frises, and they must see a squirrel or something outside. I'm embarrassed here. They're not in the office with me, but they're they're going nuts. I'm sorry, guys. Oh, oh no worries. At any given time, it could be any of our dogs. So. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're, here. They're not exactly. the first. All of us have them, and I have a I have a Lhasa Opso that uh, is fly obsessed and will bark at a fly if he sees it. So. <laughs> well, I put my little dog in the book, um, and um, and I I just you know same name and everything. I just wanted to put her in so badly, and so um, I did an interview with Entertainment Weekly last week, and and they said what what do you wish you could do differently? I said well I wish I'd written more scenes with Ava, my B. Sean Frise. And I promised that I would bring her back in the second book because there will be a sequel. So I am, again, reaffirming that promise that Ava will return in the next book. Excellent. Excellent. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's so cool. And, uh, you know, kind of getting into Winter Counts, I know you had mentioned earlier um, that, you know, you had kind of first started working with, you know, like Virgil Wounded Horse, who's the protagonist of the novel in your MFA. I believe, and it kind of started as like a short story. And I was just curious, you know, kind of, you know, how you just, what made you decide to kind of expand that story into a novel? And also, you know, has, how has Virgil evolved as a character, you know, since you first, you know, Ah. basically. Great, great, great question. And let me, let me give the setup here. So for any listeners that, you know, haven't read the book or read anything about it. And I suspect that's probably most, if not all of them, <clears throat> you know, so the, the setup of the book is this, uh, Virgil wounded horse is the protagonist of, of my novel winter counts. He is a hired vigilante. Now, the reason that he exists is because there's a law on Indian reservations called major crimes act passed in 1885. Still good law. A bullshit this law says, law. Sorry. What's that? Said it's a bullshit law. Sorry. Yeah, it is. It, it it is, and I I you know I've got a lot to say about it, but I'll just describe what it is at first. So it's a law that says uh, uh, if there's a felony crime that occurs on native reservations, and they catch the person, uh, tribal police they can't and prosecutors they can't prosecute the criminal. They have to call up the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office, hand the person over to the feds. Well. That's fine and dandy, except that the feds are refusing to prosecute anywhere from one third to half of these felony crimes. So you've got child molesters, rapists, murderers, arsonists that are doing terrible things. They get handed over to the feds and the feds are like, yeah, you know, for a variety of reasons, we're not going to pursue this case. You're free to go. And so you have literally this lawlessness going on on native reservations so people have turned to other sources of justice, like a hired vigilante, somebody that will beat the crap out of the guy that raped your little kid or, you know, hurt your sister or your mom. So that is the character. And they really exist on native reservations. That's the number one question I get asked. Do they really exist? The answer yeah. is yes. That doesn't surprise. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, so I, I, I loved this character and I did create him in a short story that I published in 2014 in Yellow Medicine Review Journal. Um, but but I, I wrote him in about 2011 and then I published that story. But I love your question, which is how has he evolved? So I decided about 2016 to turn the story into a novel. And so I started really thinking about Virgil. And if anyone reads the book, you'll see that Virgil kind of grapples with the morality of what he's doing. He accepts that vigilante justice, he understands that it's not, you know, always the way to go. And he, he's kind of uncomfortable with it, especially because he discovers that he, he just really likes the beatings. He just likes to beat people up. But he says in the book, he's like, you know, look, there, there isn't a support group for hired thugs. So I just kind of <laughs> handle this on my own. Um so what was new was I, I think that I brought in hopefully a sense of the conflicts that he that he he goes through in his own head, understanding that, you know, maybe what he's doing, you know, there there's some complexities to it here and he, he grapples with those. I would say that that's the big thing. And then I introduced the character of Marie, his ex-girlfriend, and it's not giving away too much to hint that they spark up during the course of the book. They spark up their romance again. And that was new as well. And so I, I kind of I had him evolve and sort of change and become a, a, a good partner again. So those, I would say, would be the big things that I added to his character. Yeah, and Marie was a good offset to that, too, in that, you know, where you're talking about him questioning things and whatnot, because she was felt like she was a big part of uh, the catalyst that was causing him to question his identity and, you know, um, kind of search deeper for himself yeah thank you for picking up on that i i brought her in you know i love her character as well i brought her in to kind of be counterweight to virgil initially to to kind of you know be like his conscience in a sense and be like look you shouldn't be doing this you shouldn't be doing this but then i i felt in the the early draft of this that i hadn't given her her own arc and really fully realized her. So I really did a lot of thinking and work to try and create her character so that she has her own struggles, which she does. Um, she wants to be a traditional medicine woman, but her parents are pushing her to go to medical, Western medical school. She's got that conflict. She's got some other conflicts that occur later in the book. So I feel that I, hopefully I gave her her own arc as well. So, so yeah, that was, that, that was, a lot of fun as well and 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 a lot of work well i think i think it definitely paid off with marie because yes yeah, she i hadn't thought about that but yeah i can see where like initially if she was brought in as a counterweight you know you have to back off and like think okay but sh who is she outside of being this additional voice you know or former part of virgil's life and she really does have a lot going on and i thought that was really interesting her talking about wanting to um, you know, where she's kind of accepted the med school route to a certain degree and talking about wanting to um, sort of make it holistic healing, um, bring in a lot of the uh, indigenous um, practices that she had learned. And I just I, I, I absolutely just love that idea. Oh, thank you. You know, and I'm, I'm playing with her arc right now for the second book. So. I have book number two due to HarperCollins by next summer, so I'm I'm you know I'm obviously talking about this book and getting getting ready to launch it on August 25th, and I understand that this 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 broadcast may air a little bit after that. So by the time folks hear this, the book will actually be out there. 
Um, but I'm, I'm also in my head, like trying to figure out where she goes next. So Marie is definitely coming back and she's going to have a whole new set of challenges. I'll just leave it at that. I won't, I won't give away anything yet. Yeah, that, that's awesome that she's going to be another, another part of that book and, uh, a big part of that book, I should say. And, um, you know, kind of, that's one of the things that I liked a lot about winter counts is that you know like a lot of the stuff we like as far as like crime and noir at least for myself you know is a lot of like the really gritty stuff and you know there's a lot of that in winter counts but i also kind of like how you handled the relationships you know between you know him and marie and you know him and nathan and just kind of like not just the familial relationships, but also kind of like the community relationships that he has with, you know, other members on the reservation. I thought that was something that was really cool and also kind of makes it a little bit different, you know, maybe from some of the other, you know, crime thrillers that are out there. Well, thank you again for picking up on that. Look, I love, you know, the gritty violence stuff as well. And, you know, anybody that's listening to this, I mean, I need, I need to give you a warning. There's, a lot of violence in the book. Okay. I'll just say that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I, I didn't want it to be just that. I mean, I also wanted it to be a character driven story in which each of the characters, Nathan, the 14 year old that Virgil looks after uh, Marie, you know, even some of the minor characters have a little bit of their own arc. I wanted each of them to have an arc, um, you know, a journey that they, that they go on. And I, I very consciously, you know, built that in. Cause I, a lot of the crime novels that I love, they, they do that as well. You know, but then I also thought about, is there a unique style of indigenous crime fiction? So when I was writing this book, I was reading a book that Stephen Graham Jones wrote called All the Beautiful Sinners, which I think is one of the landmarks in native crime fiction. He's written so many. I wouldn't be surprised if you haven't read it. The guy is so prolific. And there's another author called Lewis Owens, who's sadly passed on. And and I'm actually writing on an I'm working on an article right now to hopefully go into crime reads about is there a unique native crime fiction style? And I, I, I think there is. My argument is that there is. And I think that it, it can incorporate both political and social commentary as well as some elements of like magical realism and surrealism. So I got some pushback from my editor on some of the more surreal and magical realism and, you know, crazy vision stuff. He, you know, they kind of wanted me to cut that, but I'm like, no, no, I think this is important. I think, I think it's important for the style. I'm trying to push this genre forward into something unique. So, so that was something I, I, I added as well, in addition to the character stuff. So, and really, I mean, that's a good. You named some really good examples there. Mm-hmm. Uh, one I haven't read. One I obviously have read in the, in the form of Stephen Graham Jones, um, and all the beautiful sinners is, I mean. For what you're talking about, that book is iconic. Yes. Um, and in my opinion, it's sad that that, that it is, if it still is, currently um, out of print because it's probably his best book, at least as, from what I've read so far. I haven't read the new one that he's getting so much press for. I think it's called uh, The Only Good Indians, and I hear it's tremendous. Um, it is. It is. Yes. Yeah. That's what I've heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, but all the beautiful sinners, you know, you're you're right. It came out from a press in hardback. I don't know. I want to say 2010, or I don't know when exactly. But that press went out of business. Now, my understanding 
is that he sold the rights reverted back to Stephen, so you can get it in ebook from the uh, publisher Zank. I'm not sure how you say it. Zank. I'm not sure. Zank. Um, but he rewrote it. Interestingly enough, he he re- rewrote the ending. He and I talked about this, and he told me, and I hope he doesn't mind me speaking for him. He said that when he published the book initially, he didn't like the ending, and his editor forced him into it. So when he got the rights back, he wrote the book that he wanted to write. Okay, oh. you know, yeah. Right so, so you can get the book in ebook form, is my understanding. So anybody that's listening out there, I wholeheartedly recommend all the beautiful sinners. And that's uh, D Z A N C, and I can't pronounce it either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize that he had rewritten the ending. That's that's interesting. Um, yeah. I'll have to because I have the hardback. I'll have to go check out the ebook and see what changed for him there. That's that's cool. Yeah, me well, too. I really I like, too, that you were able to to do some pushback with your editor on that, because I feel like, you know, in particular, some of like, I guess, as you know, as, as you refer to it, the magical realism or the vision sort of thing, it really, really works anyways, because I guess where Virgil is a little bit, I don't want to say aloof from it, but he has his own reasons for not feeling as connected to it, you know, where he's got some some kind of anger he's holding on to that. It's like when it happens, you know, when things happen to him, it seems, I don't know. It just, for a minute I was like, wait, there's no, I was like, Oh yeah. It just, it just wove in so naturally, you know, that it's not something at all that seems like it's uh, coming out of left field or anything. Well, thank you again. You know, I, uh, not so much with the ending, and again, I don't want to give away too much to anybody who hasn't read it, but there are a couple of sort of more surreal scenes in there. Um, you know, I did trim them back a little bit, uh, the first one especially. But yeah, I just I, I, I felt that they fit with sort of the vision that I had for this book. And, you know, my, my editor was was great. You know, I made the case, and he's like, okay, all right, I see what you're saying. So honestly, I got nothing but good things to say about the folks at Echo. They They have been a dream to work with. That's excellent. That's that's really good. Yeah, and just, you know, like you said, it kind of makes it, you know, something a little bit unique and a little bit different, you know, especially for, like, the genre. And, you know, just giving something a little bit different than just, like, a straightforward thing. And I feel like, you know, it's it was kind of like an important theme, like Laurel said, you know, that, he was kind of aloof from it and then like including that stuff in there, you know, kind of, it was kind of important to his journey. Well, I thought so too, you know, so he has this journey again, it's not giving way too much to say that he kind of rejects being Lakota native, you know, he, he hates that stuff. He's been picked on bullied all of his life, but he, he, you know, he has a journey of, you know, is he going to accept his native identity or not? And so, you know, that, that was part of the journey. And then, you know, I'll, I'll shift this conversation a little bit. The other thing that Echo did not mind me doing was I brought in, obviously, a lot of political commentary. We've already talked about the Major Crimes Act, but I felt it was important as well to bring in some other issues that folks, if you don't live on a native reservation, you probably wouldn't know this, like our terrible healthcare system, you know, and so I touch upon that briefly. Natives get free healthcare, allegedly, through what's called the IHS, the Indian Health Service. So the the deal that was struck between the U.S. government and natives is we get the continent, but we agree to give you these little plots of land that you can live on. They'll be forever yours, and we'll give you free health care and free food forever. That was the the bargain. 
um, you know, now the bargain obviously has been broken uh, yeah. repeatedly. Um, but you can still get this health care, except that it's terrible. Um, I don't know many natives that like the health care that we get. And so I felt that I had to touch upon that and also the food situation. Um, you know, he- uh, food is healthy and decent food is tough to get on many reservations. And so the most iconic food for natives is fry bread. You know, it's made with uh, um, flour, baking soda, a pinch of salt, and fried in hot oil. It's it's not a super healthy food, and so a lot of natives get diabetes. My, my own mother did, and the average life expectancy for a man on my reservation is 47 years old. You know, 47. Um, you know, what is it? I think in general, American population is like 78 or something. I mean, that's just a testament to the, the problems that we have with diet and decent health care. I didn't want to turn the book into, you know, a lecture or a textbook, but I thought it was important to kind of bring some awareness to those issues. So, yeah, and I think you did a great job with that. And that was one of the things that uh, I was actually going to ask you next was kind of about that, because like you said, you I love how you were able to, you know, you know, in the context of, you know, the fictional story, you were able to, you know, put in a lot of information and make commentary about those kind of issues. And like, you know, it kind of educates people and it's, but it's not like, you know, separate. It's weaved in very naturally throughout the course of the story. Well, thank you. And, and I'm glad you picked up on that. Cause again, I didn't, you know, I didn't want it to be a polemic. I didn't want to like hit people over the head with it. And and I'm obviously critical of natives as well, you know, that natives do some, make some dumb choices. And, you know, so I wanted to give a, a truthful portrayal as well. You know, so I, I also criticize in the book, you know, obliquely natives when they do certain things that I, I don't agree with, you know, um, like our tribal governments are not well structured. Uh, many natives, tribal governments are just a disaster. They're corrupt. They don't operate well. Anyway, so, yeah, I did weave that in because I thought it was important, you know, to provide some context to folks. But, again, I I wasn't going to sacrifice, hopefully, a good page-turning narrative. So. Yeah, no, you definitely didn't. Like, I was telling these guys, um, like, I was when I was reading it, you know, I had started it. And then I think I, because it was, like, during the work week, I read, like, the first, like, 80 pages or so. And then... um, had some time off and I actually just spent like the whole day reading the rest. <laughs> oh, I'm honored. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I, I I agree with Rich. You definitely didn't sacrifice anything on pacing there. I, I just feel like it was so, you know, I mean, there's definitely there's political commentary in there, but none of it all just seems like it's just so central to the book and central to like you said, the context and, um, you know, Virgil being who he is and, you know, how he how he ended up doing the job that he does and how he views it and, you know, his ex-girlfriend views it and their family and all that sort of thing. There's just so much built into it. Well, thank you. And I'll I'll throw in as well. I, I, I threw in some other stuff, too. This was just really fun for me. But the the, the couple of chapters that happened in Denver, I threw in a lot of local Denver, Colorado lore uh, like I have them visit this restaurant that is kind of iconic out here called Casa Bonita, which is this really crazy restaurant. It was actually in a, an episode of South Park once, and and it's it's well known. Every we we kind of hate it and we love it. And so I had to get that in there. 
And um, and I, I built a lot of other like sort of Denver stuff as well. So Denverites are going to pick up on a lot of these things. And that was fun. Like I, I have them go to a dispensary where there's this, you know, marijuana dispensary where there's this pompous, you know, salesperson. <laughs> yes. And, you know, and so I, I, I just I had to have some fun with all this. And then I did build in some Easter eggs as well. Uh, I, I can tell there are some crime fiction lovers here in this group. So there there are two homages or tributes, if you will, to some famous crime writers in the book. So I kind of built those in just little hidden clues. So I won't reveal who they are. So. Oh, that's fun. That's And I was going to ask, too, about that restaurant because it seemed like it was so detailed. I was like, I wonder if that really exists. <laughs> It does. Like <laughs> it does. And everybody in Denver, kids love it because it's this giant restaurant. It's like a half a theme park and and a, and, and they have awful, terrible Mexican food. And <laughs> listen, any any listeners out there, I love Casa Bonita. OK, I love it, you know, but nobody goes there for the food. They have like cliff divers and a museum and and magic shows. And it's just it's just fun to go to. And so I, I kind of had to. To bring that in, it's it's like part of the old Denver that is changing. You know, we're we're like gentrifying and getting wealthy and you know generic and all that. And so I wanted to kind of celebrate some of the the cool parts of Denver. But yes, uh, Casa Bonita is a real thing, as is Carhenge. So that's in Nebraska. But I have them early in the book visit this thing called Carhenge, which is a uh, a some farmer or something in a an abandoned field in Nebraska. He 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 buried all these cars on their side so that they look like Stonehenge. And so that that's a real thing as well. So that 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 I had to get in there also. Yeah, that was really cool. Well, and I really I liked, you know, how Virgil experienced that. I I will also try to avoid spoiling anything or, you know, revealing too much stuff But I, I did really enjoy his experience there. Yeah, again, that was that was really fun to write. I mean, I, I get to see Carhenge quite a bit because the drive from Denver to the Rosebud Reservation, one route takes you right through Alliance, Nebraska, which is where Carhenge is. And it's just such a random thing in this tiny little town of like 300 people. And it's just this weird piece of Americana. And so, you know, I mean, look, there's crime and, and violence and plot and all that. But hopefully in the book, there are also like some just some fun diversions, you know, here and there. As there as there are on all the best road trips. So, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's um, awkward. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Rich. No, go ahead. no, you go ahead, man. I was just going to say there's an awkward silence. We've got that out of the way for the night. So. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, David, one thing that um, I thought was cool, too, and, you know, I know that there's a lot of books out there that do cover – different areas but like it was cool to read a book that like you said a lot of it kind of takes place in denver and also on the reservation and i always love reading crime stories that are set in different areas because it seems like for the most part and like i said i know there's some that are set in other areas it's pretty much dominated by you know like new york city or like la so it was kind of cool to you know get a different kind of experience in that regard. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I, I gave some thought way early on to the book in just writing it in, in Denver. 
But I did want to bring it onto the reservation because it's such, the reservation is such an interesting place. It's like a small town in some ways. Everybody mm-hmm. knows everybody's business. And uh, But yeah, I mean, some of my favorite crime fiction is when they really make a place come alive. I'm thinking of James Lee Burke, you know, just, just the, the great writers that really create, make their locale like a, a separate character. And so I, I, I wanted to do that. But on the other hand, I also wanted to bring them to Denver just because I didn't want the whole novel to be on the reservation. And also, I just wanted to write about Denver. So I had to come to Denver. So, <laughs> Well, that is it's where StokerCon is next year, if it happens. Yes. It's in it's in May. So ah. we're, we're all sort of hoping we can go and and go check out this restaurant and, and all the other. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You will have a good time. I promise you that, okay? <laughs> it is just this weird, strange thing. And so it's 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 worth, you know, an hour of your time. So I promise you. I guarantee it. Well, and I have – I keep thinking because you said kids love it. And, and I really – I thought that was so funny in there when, you know, the, the waitress takes pity on them and seats them away from all the screaming children. But <laughs> I, I've got a two-year-old, and I'm just like, the amount of entertainment that that would provide. Like, I don't care how bad the food is. I would go, like, weekly <laughs> and just <laughs> let For that two- be my break. <laughs> <laughs> two years old to ten, it is like nirvana. It's paradise. Um my boys now are 13 and 15, so they're they're too cool for uh, Casa Bonita, you know. But yeah, I mean, a two-year-old, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's just it's corny and it's fun and, you know, oh yeah, you if you bring your child to the conference, absolutely <laughs> go to Casa Bonita. <laughs> well, I think I'll go whether I bring him or not, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Is that well, him that I see on the picture? I see in your your what's yes, called file yep. or whatever. Oh, yes. <laughs> yep, yep. That's my kiddo. He's nice. He makes appearances when the show happens earlier, and he decides he wants to participate in the subject matter. So. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it makes sense to me that your that your boys are about that age because um I I have a stepson who is 25, ah. uh, but I was in his life as a teenager and a lot of these interactions with Nathan and that kind of stuff. I'm like, yep, this, this is all ringing very, very true. So that, that comes through very well. Yeah. Those were honestly the, the, the chapters and scenes with Nathan, who's 14 in the book were the hardest for me to write because obviously I borrowed a lot from my, my oldest son, David Jr., who is uh, 15. And, you know, I had, I, I tapped into a lot of the, the feelings and experiences that I've had with him. And, and it was, it was hard. Um, you know, my kids have had a, a little bit of a, a rough time. We lived in New York city or long Island actually, because I was teaching at Hofstra university and they lived through hurricane Sandy. We had a rough time there. We move out to Colorado. Now, you know, look, I don't, this is a fun time. I don't want to be like a downer or whatever, but about a year and a half ago, my youngest son, Sasha, 13 now, was in a school when two shooters came in and, um, you know, oh he God. survived a school shooting. Yeah. I have an article about that, but I haven't been able to place it. So it was, it's called STEM school Highlands ranch. And, um, yeah, they, they, you know, they got the, the warning and they, they had to hide in a huddle in a closet, um, a dark closet. His teacher had a, 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 a racquetball racket in her hand. So I guess, you know, if if the shooter barged in, I don't know what she was going to do with it. But but it it um you know he heard the shots that that just two classrooms over that killed a 
a young man who's a hero, uh, uh, Kendrick Castillo, was uh, a Latino, Latinx young man just three days away from graduating. The two shooters come in. He rushes them and tackles one of them, but takes a bullet in the chest and uh, dies on the spot. But that gave enough time for the other kids to rush the shooter and disarm him um, and, and held him down. And, you know, so I took my son again. I know this is, you know, I don't want to bring up like really dark stuff here, but I I took Sasha, that's my youngest son, to the funeral of this young man, the memorial service, because who knows what would happen if he hadn't had his courage. And so, you know, my kids have had, you know, I guess this is just family life today in 21st century America. But, you know, and now this pandemic that we're all living through, I just feel even though I grew up poor, I feel like my childhood was kind of idyllic compared to what kids are experiencing lately. Well, yeah, and that's, I mean, there's just a lot of, first of all, I'm so, so glad he's okay. I I just, I mean, as a parent, that has just got to be utterly terrifying, you know, to get that call and know that your kid was in the middle of something like that. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, with, with the kind of things that Nathan deals with in the book where they talk about, you know, sort of the, the almost epidemic of suicides that they're dealing with with adolescents. Um, you know, it's it's kids processing that. It's kids dealing with it and how it affects them and how it affects the way that they view the world. And, you know, when um, when uh, Virgil is talking about, you know, he's he's going to have to make a recommendation. He's like, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to let him weigh in. But it's like, ultimately, crap, I'm the adult. I'm actually going to have to probably make this decision. And it's like, yeah, that makes, you know, that just makes a lot of sense. Because sometimes I don't think we feel any more prepared than they do. Oh, that came directly from my life. I mean, I think David Jr. will mind if I say this part. So like a year ago, he sneaks out with his buddy or two years ago in the middle of the night. There's a curfew out here and where I live in the suburb of Denver. I get a call from the police at 3 a.m. Look, you know, the kid didn't do anything that bad, but he sneaks out with his buddy. They're walking around the streets and, and they get arrested for curfew violation, you know. So I had to, like, take him to community service and all that. So that was like a, a direct you know, lift from my kid. Cause I'm like, okay, I'm going to listen to what you have to say, David, but, but I'm going to make the decision as to what you do here. So, you know, it wasn't a big deal, you know, a curfew violation, but it was still, you know, a thing you have to deal with as a parent. And so, yeah, yeah. So those were, those were rough uh, uh, chapters to write. And thank you for the kind words about my younger son, Sasha. That was uh, brutal because we didn't know, I didn't know, I got the call we couldn't reach my youngest son on his cell phone. So I and it's about an hour drive from where I was teaching to the school and I couldn't reach him and you know AM radio is exploding with multiple fatalities, 10 dead, you know all this stuff. That turned out not to be true. That was a rough hour as a parent. That that's not that's every parent's worst nightmare obviously and it was it was a rough one. He is fine. He's actually really resilient. I think we were more traumatized than he was. So, thank you for saying that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I saw too that uh, you were you were signing some copies and that Sasha's going to sign a couple of them as well. Yes. So you saw that. Yeah. He signed yeah. two today. I, I had David Jr. sign one too. Just, I don't know. So I'm, I'm the Poison Pen bookstore in Arizona wanted uh, 80 copies. So I just signed a bunch today and I thought just for fun, I'll let Sasha, the book is dedicated to David and Sasha and the Sichangu Lakota people. I'm like, here, Sasha, you, so some reader out there will get like a copy with Sasha's name and one with David's name signature in there as well. It's just, just a fun thing to do. I love that. That's such a great way to fun. include them in it. Sorry, Shannon, I mean, talk over you. Go ahead. Oh no, that's fine. All I said is that is fun. So same thing. 
<laughs> yeah, it's fun. You know, they they uh, my oldest son David still will not read the book. Um, now he's kind of addicted to video games. You know, Laurel, this is. I hope you don't have to endure this. Addicted. Um, it, it breaks my heart. He's not a big reader. He still hasn't read it. My 13-year-old has read it. He's like, yeah, it's okay, Dad. So, okay, thanks, kids. You know? <laughs> From a 13-year-old, that's a, that's high praise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and look, I, if, if David ever listens to this, my kid, David Jr., got straight A's last year at one of the toughest high schools in Colorado. Well, the STEM school where the shooting was. It's a very advanced high school. So I'm like, look, son, you you get A's, you can play your video game. So he came through. So I'm like, all right, play away, you know? Yep, so. yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, my stepson, uh, my, my husband and I are both huge readers. Mm. And we tried for so long to try and get him involved. I bought him all kinds of books, you know, and my mom tried and we were all trying and, and he just didn't want anything to do with them. And we're, you know, we're like, all right, well, I guess he's not a reader. And then he becomes like 18 or 19. And my husband's into this very esoteric, like spiritual uh, nonfiction stuff. Mm. And Arthur just picks that up and starts reading it just off the cuff. And he's like, oh, well, if you'd offered me this. And I'm like, oh, OK, well, I got you banicula. I thought that would be OK. <laughs> you know i've been pinning my hopes on that for a long time that at some point my my friend tommy orange who was kind enough to blurb my book he told me that he was not a reader till he was about 17 or 18 and he's doing okay so i'm kind of hoping that my kids will will turn into readers in that way the other thing that didn't happen is I tried relentlessly, mercilessly to indoctrinate them into the music that I like. So I like old school punk, you know, alternative yeah. music. I mean, that that's my thing. So from birth, they were listening to Black Flag. Okay, in the crib, this is a true story. I would hold David in my arms and I'd play from some Black Flag and maybe some Elliot Smith or Fleet Foxes. I mean, I tried to turn them, it's like, you will listen to the music that I want. Um, but of course... <laughs> They have rejected that. David, you know, David is junior is uh, a rap aficionado um, and cool, you know, so I tried my best. I mean, I, I could not have tried any harder to get them to like Iggy and the Stooges and all that. And it, it just didn't take. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's a shame. But uh, like I, I can say for at least for myself, I was so happy to hear you say that because that's like the kind of music I listen to. And I'm sure I'm sure if they let me, I would just talk about that stuff for hours. <laughs> I did a playlist uh, related to the book that's going to appear oh, really? on launch day. Yeah. At Large Hearted Boy. So if you know this really yeah. great blog. So what I did was is instead of just doing songs that I like, um, I said, what are the songs that the characters would like. So uh, for Marie, she likes some Lucinda Williams and I think some Susie and the Banshees that she listened to when she was a teenager. I'm not a heavy metal guy, but Virgil clearly likes heavy metal. So I had to like listen to some death metal. I, I had him, I chose, I think a mega death song or something like that, you know? <laughs> and um, so that was just a heck of a lot of uh, fun to create a, a playlist of, of what the characters would listen to. For Tommy, this sort of weird court jester type character, I did get something cut out of the book. Tommy, this was cut from the book. He claims that punk rock was invented by this 1960s indigenous band from Peru called Los Psychos. And in the book, I had him kind of riff on how punk rock is really indigenous music. 
Um, that did get cut, so I brought it back in the Large Hearted Boy playlist. So I'm very thrilled that awesome. that's going to appear. So <laughs> I love that. That's, yeah, yeah that's very cool. Well, I've not heard anybody do that, do a playlist that that is from the character's perspective. Yeah. No, I haven't either. I, I did throw two of my own songs in because I'm like, hey, it's my column. And so I'm going to do two, <laughs> you know, two of my own songs. I think I chose a song by the, the L.A. punk band X because that's mm-hmm. a band that has meant a lot to me over the years. And then um, I chose a, a, a song by Neil Young from his great album Tonight's the Night. Because I was listening to that album a lot when I was writing the final chapters of the book. So I threw that in um, as well. So, yeah, that was just a, a heck of a lot of fun to write. Yeah, it sounds like it was a lot of fun to me. Yep. Um, and I like bringing the, the the personality, the music, the music in its way, you know, brings the personality of the character forward a little bit, too. And, you know, if you're an eclectic uh, listener... Um, and are familiar with some of the some of the music that you named, um, and I think all of us hear pretty much all of it. But uh, you start to get a even a clearer picture of of the um, kind of uh, not stereotypes types, but almost archetypes that these different characters are. Mm-hmm. I think so, too. And so I thought a lot as I was writing the book about what music would they listen to? You know, what would they eat? What TV would they watch? You know, so that that just kind of helped me form them a little more fully in my head. Now, initially with Marie, I had her liking like pop boy bands. And and I rewrote that section maybe 20 times because I had her liking like Sync or one of those bands. I don't remember. And I'm just like, no, no, no. And I'm finally, I'm like, no, she was a goth in her earlier years, but now likes sort of sedate but cool alt country sort of yeah. stuff. So, you know, so I, I really struggled with her more than anyone as to what her musical taste would be. Yeah, I can see that. I, I like uh, that she that she uh, was a Susie and the Banshees fan, though. I, I approve of that part. well and that allowed me to bring in my favorite record store in denver we have this wonderful classic landmark record store called wax tracks records it's been around for Mm -hmm. you know decades and you know they're struggling now because people aren't buying music as much or they're buying it digitally and so it allowed me so i i brought that in i kind of threw that in in marie's backstory that she and her friend velma used to drive to denver and go to wax track so that's just a little a little shout out to a, a record store that it meant a lot to me growing up as you know kind of a misfit outsider i would go to wax track it's wax tracks and it's like ah okay these are my people you know they understand me so uh just uh just something i threw to them so <laughs> We kind of lost the last of our place like that. We had a record store, uh, iconic, actually. People would travel here from other countries called uh, Django. Um, Where are you guys based out of? Portland, I am. Or, okay, okay. Yeah, I'm in Portland, Oregon. Um, they're in uh, New York and Kentucky. Aha, all over. Yeah, Portland is great. I, I've been to a couple conferences there lately. At, I mean, look, I love all of them, all the places that you guys are at, you know, but I, I will say Portland seemed like a, a town that I could live in. I like Portland. Um, I've been here for 55 years, so I better like it. I'm probably not going. <laughs> 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 
There will probably be an enforced road trip at some point, but we won't give you any warning. We'll just show up. (laughs) I I approve of road trips. (laughs) Well, I'm so I I'm excited to know that there's going to be a second installment to this. Um, Do you do you see this as being something that's going to be a longer term series? Are you just going to see how it goes? I would be thrilled. I told Echo, I said, I'll write as many Virgil books as you guys want to publish. Uh, But, you know, I'm only contracted legally to provide one more book, but um, they have an option on a third. I mean, I would love to. Um, You know, I see Virgil evolving in some ways. I kind of hint at it at the very end. Um, So I think I see, if this becomes a longer series, I think I see how Virgil would evolve. But I'll, I'll hold that back for now. I, I would be absolutely delighted. These characters are are so rich and and I'm gonna bring in some new characters into the second book. So it's it's just fun to to kind of see how folks evolve. And and obviously I'm drawing from my own life here. As as Nathan grows up, I'm sure I'll be, you know, um drawing from my own son David Jr. And you know, so so yeah, I I, I would love for there to be more more Virgil books for sure. Uh I think that's a mutual sentiment yeah. in this crowd right here. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, if, since we know your publishers listen to this show, um, <laughs> we'll, we'll read right? the hell out of this series <laughs> until you stop publishing it. So keep publishing it. Right on. <laughs> right on. Well, yeah. And I, I, I love the idea too, with the series you get, you know, you get evolution of the main characters, but you also sometimes get an opportunity to see more of the kind of, you know, I really like Tommy. He's fun. Yeah. 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 <laughs> he's, he's going to play a larger role. I, I had a lot of those, the, those scenes with Tommy were just pure pleasure to write. I was always in a good mood and I feel that he needs to play a larger role in the next book. So thank you so much. Cause it was just, he was just fun in every way to write. Yeah. He's a good character. I like him a lot. Yeah, same here. He has, you know, he, like, just kind of, he seems like he's a very upbeat and positive person. So it was kind of cool and, like, almost like a sense of humor. Yeah, yeah, he's just, he's just, like, a composite of a lot of people that I've known that are, you know, kind of crazy and fun and opinionated and don't take any crap and just, he he was just, you know, the more I wrote him, I, I it was hard not to let him take over you know, yeah. every scene. I, I had to like sometimes like draw him back, you know. So um, I mean, probably the most fun scene is something that actually didn't happen to me, but I heard this story. They're all drinking at a bar uh, in on the reservation or off the reservation. And um, and he's got somebody in the bar has like, I don't know what you call that tube you have to blow into an interlock system, yeah. you know. And so he would always get somebody from, you know, sober from the bar to blow into the interlock system <laughs> so that he could start the car up. But nobody in the bar is sober enough. They all blow in it and nobody can get the damn car to start. I'm pretty sure I kept that in the book. I think that's still in there. So, yes. Yep, yeah. I remember that. <laughs> you know, so just, you know, just throwing little things like that in or like the dishwasher at the restaurant who uses the dishwashing hose to hose down his parts, you know, I mean, th- this, this stuff, you know, it writes itself. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> So sometimes, yeah, you can't make it up and make it as good. (laughs) Well, another one that I liked um, was Jerome, Uh, in particular, just because I I really, when you were talking earlier about uh, Virgil's 
you know, his, his kind of struggles a little bit with the morality of what he does. Um, and, you know, I hope this isn't giving anything away in this because I'll just talk about it generally. But just when he's talking to Jerome and and he says, you know, that you have to find value not just in in like the land, but in the people. And and that is, you know, kind of the main thing of looking out for. And I just I loved that. I loved that sentiment. Yeah, those were hard to write. Uh, uh, so Jerome is a medicine man. And I, I did base him off of my own we we use the term spiritual advisor um but i felt that jerome in the book needed to have his own personality but i certainly borrowed from my own life and and my own medicine man and and i i wanted to make sure that i was portraying him respectfully because the person that i see is is such a somebody that i just have such fantastical respect for you know such a wise wonderful figure and so I needed to make sure that I, I wrote that character to give him some humanity and not just one dimensional, but to treat him with the respect that I thought he deserved. So thank you. Yeah, I thought I thought he was I thought he was very interesting. So, yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. And uh, David, this is kind of off topic, but I know um, that you had worked with uh like towards the end of the acknowledgement. So you worked with uh, Benjamin Percy at the Tin House Summer Workshop. And I was just curious, you know, what was your experience like? I don't know if he was kind of like a mentor figure or like your instructor, but like he's pretty well known in horror circles for like Red Moon, the Dark Net and stuff. But he also writes a lot of things that like blend genres. So I was just kind of curious, you know, what was it like kind of working with him or learning from him yeah ben ben percy was both an instructor and a mentor he'd probably be embarrassed to hear me say this you know <laughs> but but i i um i worked with him at tin house and he's just an ultimate cool guy and nice and he read my chapters and he said look i don't say this very often but i guarantee you this is going to be published somewhere and at that time you know i was very insecure i was like i don't know what I'm doing doing anything that's any, you know, any good. And he was just kind, but, but more than that, he modeled for me, I think how you kind of pursue a life as a professional writer. So, you know, I see the way that he interacts with people on social media, you know, he, he's respectful, he gets his own opinion, but he doesn't necessarily seek out drama. Um, he's a great writer, he supports everyone. You know, so I, I, I very much look up to Ben Percy and I, 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 if he's listening, Ben, I'm sorry. I don't mean to embarrass you. Yeah, I, I hope he, uh, I hope he listens. Yeah, but. that would be fun. <laughs> Well, you know, Ben is originally, uh, an Oregonian, so he should be listening to us. I mean, don't all Oregonians listen to us? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I just love that he writes in all these different genres as well. Um, yeah, I mean, he's yeah. got literary fiction that is great. Um, he, you know, he writes horror. He writes some crime. You know, I mean, he he really does it all. And and he he has a book of uh, writing craft essays as well called Thrill Me. I which, love that book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm assigning it in one of my classes coming up. I mean, it's just it's fun to read. It's not like dry and boring. So, yeah, I mean, the the guy just shines in a lot of areas. So, so yeah, I very much a role model. Uh, that's great that you're actually going to teach that because that book yeah. is so teachable when it comes oh, yeah. to real world experience. 
Um, and like you say, it's not a, you know, most students who are at a level where they're taking a class where you're teaching that book are going to love the hell out of that book. So not just teachable, but learnable, I guess, is more more what I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah I'm teaching a class in genre fiction at Vermont College of Fine Arts. So I'm assigning that book and uh, um, McSweeney's volume that had a bunch of short stories in different genres. I'm forgetting what it's called. Um, like 15 years old or 10 years old. So we'll see. This is, uh, you know, we'll we'll see. I I have taught crime fiction before, but I haven't taught other genres. So um, yeah. So I'm assigning a whole bunch of different stuff. But I think the techniques of genre writing, if we want to call it that, you know, will cross different genres. You know, learning how to write crisp dialogue and 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 you know and not going overboard with the backstory. That's that's you know one of Ben's things. You know, and so so I. We'll see how it goes, but I, I, I agree. I think they're going to love Ben's book, Thrill Me. Yeah, yeah, easy read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's one that I liked because, you know, it's kind of like writing tips, but also like things from his career. Like that's actually like a book where, you know, some craft books you might read, learn some stuff. Like that one I feel like is one that you wouldn't mind going back to multiple times like i've read it and i'd probably read it again fairly soon the other one that i can recommend i'm not going to teach it i haven't finished it yet but by chuck polinick i I think it might be called Mm. consider this um and that one too you know is a, a very good craft book so to writers out there that are listening emerging writers he intersperses like stories from his own life and like book tours but then he gives just some really great concrete writing examples which i i love you know i love the concrete stuff you know as opposed to kind of like vague stuff like you know just find your truth you know he's like no just here's how you do this these dialogue tags effectively just stuff like that but the stories as well are are great because i guess he would do crazy book tours where we would buy suitcases of rubber severed arms and stuff like that (laughs) and throw them out into the audience and i'm like wow that that does sound like a good reading you know (laughs) (laughs) you're gonna have Uh, their attention certainly (laughs) yeah palinic reading is uh is an interesting experience yeah or when he was younger it was he used to do readings here in portland all the time oh yeah yeah he was uh quite a frequenter here i think he may still be i don't know for sure but um, yeah, he's a fun guy to listen to read, although you may miss out on the content, you know, <laughs> Just I've never had, the, I've never had the good fortune. So, and, and again, who knows when this crazy pandemic is going to clear up, but it, but yeah, I'm kind of envious cause it sounds like it's just a, a wonderful thing to experience. Yeah. 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 Fun. And I know like the, the one that was popular, which, you know, I don't know how factual it is, is like, you know, when he read from his collection Haunted, he has a story, I believe it's called Guts. Is that uh, right? The swimming pool story? Yeah. Yeah. That like made people pass out and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I read that story about three years ago because so Winter Counts is written in first person and mm-hmm. I was like, wow, am I really going to be able to write a full 300-page book in first? So I was doing a really deep study of writing in first person. And all of these craft books said, you need to read what Chuck Palahniuk has to say about 
uh, writing in first. And, you know, don't use the word I, 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 you know, try to use it as little as possible. That, that You can't always do that. And so I recommended this story. And I didn't know a ton about his writing. I'd seen Fight Club, of course, you know, but I'm reading the story and it takes a fairly dark turn that I, that I wasn't really yeah. expecting. So, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it, very dark. Yes. That, uh, that whole that whole thing yeah it's kind of uh, interesting how if you look up the wiki on that book or anything like that or anything else guts is prominent in any t- any talk yeah. about that title <laughs> yeah he's but listen the craft book is good i'm i'm, I'm telling you yeah. um i could see myself teaching that as well down the line so and you said yeah. that was called consider this I think that's right. I, I, I believe so. Um, uh, um, it, it's it's. I don't have it handy, but I'm pretty sure that's right. It came yeah. out like a year ago. It so. is. Yeah, it is the one with the hand on the cover, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's. I'm pretty sure it's consider this or something really close to that. Close enough. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. I haven't read it. I just have seen it several times. It's worth it. I'll, yeah. I'll quit rhapsodizing over this book. I'll just say it's, <laughs> it's, it's worth it. Okay, I'll leave it there. <laughs> That's, your your work is done, though. We I I'm pretty sure all three of us are buying yeah. books. So. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, I I hate to put you on the spot, David, but you know, just out of curiosity, because I know you named some craft books. You know, what are some other books you're reading now that you enjoy maybe some other authors that you enjoy um reading as well whether they be new or you know established favorites yeah i just wrote a little blog post for the poison pen um bookstore and and i can talk about some of those um so and i'll if anybody wants to read a much more polished version of this you know go to the poison pen website and you can read my little blog post about what I'm reading this week or reading lately. But but um, there's a great book by Deborah Immigrant Marks, uh, uh, her latest. Um, I think it's called You Again, also from Echo. So I'm being a good Echo citizen here. It's it's superb. It's I can't I've just started reading it. It's great. I'm reading a book right now that I'm absolutely obsessed with. I'm reading with him in, in two days. William Kent Kruger, This Tender Land. Um, I will confess I had not read any of his stuff before, and I bought this book because he and I are doing a joint reading, um, I think the 24th, Through the Poison Pen. And it's it's a work of uh, literary fiction, but it's about two kids in the 1930s, uh, white kids, that are taken to a native boarding school where they are treated terribly. Now, it, this book, first of all, the writing is superb. It, he is a masterful writer. There's just no two ways about it. I've been raving to my girlfriend about it all week. She's a writer, Erica Wirth. And um, and it is a, a superb. Um, and it resonates with me because my grandmother was at the most infamous of all of the native boarding schools, the Carlisle Indian School. And, and so his book really, really, I would say, brings – that time alive you can you know you can read about it in a textbook but you read it fictionalized and how you know they would sexually abuse these kids beat them kill them you know it 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 you know a few times i was just tearing up um and i'm only about a third of the way in so i really can't recommend it enough um and it's clearly striking a chord i think it's on the new york times bestseller list for paperbacks um I'll also mention my buddy Sean Cosby or I think he writes under SA Cosby Blacktop Wasteland 
is just a fun, fun book. It's gotten a ton of press lately. Yeah, yeah it's a, it's just uh, uh, you know, just a fun, great book. It 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 grabs you and it 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 keeps you going and it doesn't let up. I read it in like a, a day and a half. It was it was well worth the time. Sean and I are doing a reading as well. I should say I'm actually plugging people that I like, not just people I'm reading with. Okay, but Sean is a he's one of the good guys in crime fiction. Um, he's just a good fella in every way and, and also just a great writer. And then, and then the other book that I mentioned in The Poison Pen is a book of, of popular history called The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee by David Troyer. So this book came out like two years ago. It was nominated for the National Book Award in nonfiction. And it, so it's, it's popular history, which I'm sure sounds very dry, okay? But I assure you that it's not. And if, if listeners out there are not you know, really versed in Native American history, and, you know, it's not really taught in schools, why would you? Um, this is the book to start with, uh, because it kind of covers the, 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 great, the great events that have shaped American Indians in the USA from the time that the European settlers came up until the present day, but in a wonderfully intriguing, witty, and interesting style. So he, he brings in some of his own life, he brings in reportage, he brings in history. It 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 is just it is really a great book, and there's a reason why I was nominated for the National Book Award. So I I loved that book, and I can really recommend it to somebody that that wants to do a little nonfiction. So those were the four that I you know that are most on my mind right this week. Yeah, um, yeah I'm those reading all that. Uh, yeah, I'm reading. I just started reading the essay Cosby title last night, and uh, yeah, it's uh, something I was telling Laurel earlier it's something special for sure yeah I mean Sean Cosby S.A. Cosby's book um yeah I mean it's just it's very propulsive you know it's a it's a heist book and he just you know he just he, he it's very plot heavy you know and it just it just zooms through it and so I'm I'm just thrilled for him I had the good fortune to to meet him at uh, BoucherCon uh back when we actually had conferences and stuff and we yeah. just bonded right away and and so I'm just so so thrilled for him. And so we're we're going to be doing a reading together. If anybody's listening, this actually maybe by the time this airs, it might be over. I think it's August 29th. Um, so well, we did a reading. We'll say that we did a reading on August 29th at Politics and Prose, and I I'm I'm sure it went well. So. <laughs> so and let me mention one more too, because Kelly Joe uh, always mentions my book. So another great book that maybe is outside the realm of a lot of listeners of a of a you know this podcast which is more genre oriented so kelly joe ford has a book called crooked hallelujah which came out about i think six weeks ago and it is literary fiction it's a novel in stories and it's about four generations of cherokee women it came out from i think grove and it's it's Mm -hmm. it got a lot of press too and you know so this is kind of the opposite of sean's book in that it's not heavily plot driven but if you want a slower moving tale that really focuses upon characters this is just great. And so I really can't recommend it enough. So, you know, I'm just fortunate because I've got like, you know, I've been reading great crime stuff and history and literary fiction. So it's just it's it's a good time for books. It's just too bad we can't like gather together, have a beer and talk about them in person. I know. <laughs> I miss that stuff. Yep. Um, yeah, this is kind of but as, as close as the three of us ever get to a bar yeah. talking with other people. About <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
Well, so how are how are you all doing the readings? Are you doing them like a, via Zoom or like a YouTube Live? How are you doing that? Uh, Zoom, yeah, and and Facebook Live seems to be a lot. Uh, 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 Zoom seems to be going out. Um, uh, a buddy of mine, Wes Brown, and he did a reading. Wesley Brown, that's another good book. Uh, it came out from I think University University Press of Kentucky. Uh, it's and I'm I'm drawing a blank on what it's called. I'm sorry, Wesley, if you're listening to this. Um, it's really good. I workshop with him at Tin House with Ben Percy. It's superb. Um, it's a crime novel. But he was in a reading with some other Kentucky writers, and they got Zoom bombed in the most horrible way. Um, I missed it, but they were all just sitting around stunned. I mean, I won't even describe what it was, what I heard happened. So Zoom seems to be maybe becoming disfavored. I don't know. I think because of with those live links, um, the the capacity for people to because I guess there's not I guess there's not as good of a way to sort of like vet people. To you lock know, it if, down, if you're wanting yeah. people to just, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think I read about that incident. That is that is awful. That's just yeah. There have been a lot um, of them lately, but this one was especially horrific. So they they took took it off zoom and they somehow were able to set it up on facebook but they were all rattled and you know and rightfully so from the the horrible thing that somebody posted up there so yeah so i i mean i've done a couple of these live readings but it's going to really start ramping up for me the week of uh, august 24th so well that's exciting that'll that'll be fun yeah thank you yeah and uh I'll definitely try and catch some of those because I can't say enough how much how much I loved reading Winter Counts. And, you know, I was kind of glad when you said, you know, fairly early on because I wanted to ask if there was going to be like a series. But, you know, like that seems to be like my major thing is always asking people like, oh, are you going to turn this into a series? Like I really wanted it to be one, but. I'm glad that you uh, said that first, and I'm really excited to uh, read that one, and I hope that it's the start, you know, of a very long series. Yeah, if people are looking for kind of a comparison, and and there is no comparison, this book is kind of, I mean, definitely its own thing, but if I were going to say, you know, for fans of, I would be calling out... Uh, Laird Barron for you know his blood standard Isaiah Coleridge novels yeah. and um, Hank Early for the what is it yeah. Earl Marcus novels. Um, this this book stands up there with the best the best of any kind of rural noir I can ever imagine. High praise. Uh, I mean, thank you. You know very much. Usually the comparison I get is Craig Johnson, which maybe I mean. Um, you know, his Longmire books are great. I think maybe they're a little less violent than, than mine, um, my book. But, I mean, I'll, I'll take it all. You know, I'm just, you know, I, I, I just want to say, too, I thank you guys for being early supporters of this book. Really, you you don't mm-hmm. know how much it meant to me. It, it, it really did mean a lot. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. I yeah. feel very lucky that we got, you know, early copies and and uh and got to read it early because it's it is i'll i'll echo the, echo the guys this is very very enjoyable and i'm i'm very excited to read more about virgil definitely right definitely um yep well i'm always the party pooper in this crowd cause I, have to, <laughs> I have to cook for my wife um so i mean i don't have to but it keeps both of us <laughs> um, so i'm gonna have to wrap up here 
Well, I was uh, as well, and I, I didn't mean to talk over you. I just want to, you know, just again say, say, you know, thank you to everyone. Um, you know, it just, it's, it's great to connect and, and have a good discussion. So thank you so much. Uh, and it's great to have you. Yeah, it's yeah. great. It's great having you on, David. Yeah, Lowell? thanks too. We'll, we'll be looking forward to the to the next one, and absolutely good luck with your release. I think obviously it's uh, it's already hitting quite well, so that's that's awesome. Yeah. yeah, and we'll have you back the next time too, um, if you'll if you'll uh, grace us with your presence again. I'd be honored, guys. I'd be honored. All right, thank you, and any listeners out there and readers, thank you as well. So take care, everyone. Have Thanks. a wonderful night. Have a good night. Bye, guys. Bye. Is somebody going to hang the fucking thing? <laughs>